Good morning uh, here from London, and I'm delighted to have today a dear friend of mine, Michael Powers, who, and this is the great element, if there are some great elements about the pandemic, who's dialing in from Beijing, uh, from Tsinghua University. Hello, Michael. Good to, Hi, Michael. Good, good to good see you. Um, now, today's topic uh, sounds extraordinary uh, because it is. It says extress, assessing extraordinary claims, actuarial science, and the search for truth. Now, this is an opportunity for me to tell all of my actuarial jokes, which I, I shan't do, uh, because I do think that we frequently overlook actuarial science and its deep effects on our understanding of knowledge itself, uh, as well as uh, areas such as insurance and pensions. Now, uh, you'll know me, I'm Michael Minelli, I'm one of the directors of Xian, and I am not the star today, Michael Powers is, uh, but I can only uh, handle so many of these webinars due to the tolerance, if I can call it that, of our sponsors, who allow us to range widely and freely across technology, economics, and finance. And I find it interesting that we are holding uh, today's event just after I spent a lunchtime last Thursday listening to extraordinary claims about longevity. Uh, from somebody who is deep, deep into the topic. Uh, and so today, I think you'll find most interesting. Meanwhile, anyway, my job is to get out of the way as quickly as possible so you can hear from our experts. So three uh, very quick points, if I may. Firstly, uh, yes, this is being recorded and the recording will go up in approximately two working days, so uh, perhaps midday on Thursday, London time. Uh, secondly, uh, yes, the slides are here and they're being posted and they will be posted on the website. Uh, but most importantly, please do feed in questions, comments, and answers, because today is a, a topic that I think all of us are interested in. How long will we live? And I'm sure that you've got a lot to contribute. So questions, comments, and observations, uh, but don't text them to me, don't signal me, don't WhatsApp me, don't Insta me, whatever, don't email me. I'm here with you. So please do use the GoToWebinar uh, question facility, and all of your questions, comments, and observations will be sent to Michael with email attached. If you want to pick up on a point of detail or anything, just type it in there and we'll make sure that he gets it. Anyway, enough from me. Michael, the floor is yours. Well, thank you very much, Michael. Thank you for that warm introduction and thank you for inviting me to take part in this series. Um, the title of my, my talk is Assessing Extraordinary Claims. And so in a minute, I will begin by talking about what, I, what exactly I mean by an extraordinary claim, uh, which will also involve what I mean by an extraordinary event. And then the subtitle is Actuarial Science and the Search for Truth. Um, and uh, the reason I, I have this, uh, this reference to actuarial science is that I intend to borrow two things from that subject area. Uh, one is the, the problem, the, the specific problem that I want to focus on, to, to uh, study the idea of an extraordinary claim. And the other one is that in the context of considering extraordinary claims, we'll talk about the use of subjective information or judgment. And I want to borrow a tool that professional actuaries use to incorporate subjective information with more objective, so, so to speak, um, experimental or observational data. Next slide. I'd like to begin with uh, something, the so-called um, Sagan standard. Now, this is a dictum that um, was popularized by Carl Sagan, the American astronomer. Um, he first used it um, in his television program, Cosmos, in 1980. 
which to me seems like just yesterday, but I know it's quite a number of years ago. Um, and the statement is extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Um, this has become a standard dictum um, in, in many, many contexts. And I, I think that is generally accepted by, by most people. Um, in fairness, uh, Sagan was not the person who first said this, uh, that honor, or at least as far as, as I can find on the internet, goes to Philip Abelson, an American physicist who said exactly the same thing a couple of years earlier. Uh, there, Marcello Truzzi said something very similar a couple of years earlier. So this, obviously this idea was in the air around the time that Sagan put it on his program, but he certainly popularized it. And, um, and, the, uh, and so it's now known as the Sagan standard. Um, I, I think that um, just to be brief about it, the, the idea is that if you're going to try to convince me of something unusual or extreme, something very much out of the ordinary, you had better come to me with substantial evidence. Some, you better have done some um, you know, serious work, come up with some unusual evidence to convince me that this extraordinary claim is valid. Uh, the rest of the slide has some earlier quotes on which I'll let you read at your pleasure. Next slide. Um, the, I just want to point out very briefly in the interest of parsimony uh, that the um, Sagan standard is related to Occam's razor, um, but it's not exactly the same thing. Um, Occam's razor, and I, by the way, I have a number of um, different versions of that, is really a call for parsimony or economy in terms of explaining phenomena in science. And, um, and actually the, the statements by Aristotle and Isaac Newton, I think are, are probably better, clearer than uh, the one by William of Ockham himself. But um, the idea is that um, if you go beyond the, the simplest explanation, uh, which might be the, the case with an extraordinary claim, then you really have to present, you're, you have to make an exception in, in a sense to Occam's razor. And that would be the extraordinary evidence that's talked about in the Sagan standard. Next slide, please. Um, I will need to define what an extraordinary claim and an extraordinary event are. I'm going to do this in a very coarse way. Um, I will say that an extraordinary claim is an assertion that an extraordinary event either has occurred or will occur sometime in the future. Um, what is an extraordinary event? Well, that requires a little bit more detail. Um, I have a two-part definition. It's a rough definition. Uh, the first part is that it has to be very, very unlikely in an a priori sense. It has to have a very low probability. I'm gonna use a threshold of one out of a million. I didn't choose that number myself. That comes from the English mathematician Littlewood, his so-called law of miracles in which he attempted to estimate how often a person sees a true miracle. And he used one out of a million as the threshold for that kind of event. By the way, he said, we see them about one every 30 days, um, but I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna go any further into, into that law of miracles today. I just wanna use the threshold. Um, he also, he's, it's not so clear about this. And, and uh, to be honest, uh, he doesn't have it written down. Littlewood does not have this recorded it's recorded through um, the American scientist Freeman Dyson, who 
um, wrote about it some years after he heard it from um, Littlewood. And um, there's a second part, but it, it isn't so clear in Dyson's, um, Dyson's summary. And that is that the event not only has to have a very low probability, but it, it has to be in some way conspicuous. It has to be significant or have some importance. And um, what I wanna point out is the way that usually happens is through um, prediction. And the prediction could be a matter of prophecy. So our friend Nostradamus perhaps makes the prediction of some event um, that is very unlikely to occur. We say that's an extraordinary claim. Or uh, perhaps more recently, Albert Einstein uh, might predict something um, in, according to his general theory of relativity. For example, light is spent um, or by gravitation. That becomes an alternative hypothesis in the scientific method. Uh, it's an extraordinary claim because it was not part of the status quo. Now um, it has to be supported by some extraordinary event. That is some uh, evidence, experimental evidence that um, would be considered unusual um, prior to, to having this hypothesis. Uh, next slide, please. Uh, to make it very concrete, imagine I, I take a fair coin out of my pocket that has equal probability of giving me heads or tails. I toss the coin 20 times, I get heads, tails, 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 heads, tails, and so forth. Um, that sequence of 20 coin tosses has an a priori probability of less than one out of a million. Any sequence of 20 would have a probability of less than one out of a million. But there's nothing extraordinary about it, nothing, it, sorry, nothing conspicuous about it, and therefore we wouldn't say that it's an extraordinary event. However, if I pull the coin out and I said, I'm going to toss heads, tails, 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 heads, tails, and so forth, and then I went ahead and did it. Well, first of all, my statement would be an extraordinary claim, and then the actual realization would be an extraordinary event. So that's that's what I mean practically by an extraordinary claim and an extraordinary event. Next slide. Okay, we're gonna shift gears here and turn to the world of actuarial science because I want to come up with a, a concrete problem, uh, interesting problem to work with. Um, the, the slide is, is titled rather um, presumptuously, the most important open question. If we have any actuaries in the audience, uh, they may disagree with this. Um, and uh, my, my choice is what is the maximum possible human lifespan? Why? Because we're all human beings. We want to know how long we're going to live. That seems to be something that's on everybody's mind at some point in their life. Um, and it's, um, even though I don't work in the area of life insurance, I, I, I work more in property liability type uh, issues. Um, I think that this is uh, the most important, intellectually the most important question. Well, how are we going to model that? Think of an individual born, they're born at time zero, they live their life, they die at some random time. That, that time from birth till death, we can think of as a random variable. It has a probability distribution. Do we model it as a number from zero to infinity or as a, a number from zero to some finite upper bound omega? Um, there really is no. Um, confirmed answer to this question. Uh, people could have different theories that would lead to different alternatives. We might believe, for example, that omega today is finite, but someday it will be infinite. Um, for my talk, I'm going to assume that omega is finite. 
and I'm going to assume that it's more or less the same omega for every human being everywhere in the world. And um, I will acknowledge that probably that's not the case, and it also probably changes over time, but I want to have a, a simplifying assumption that, that omega is a constant and applies to everybody, um, and we want to try to estimate. Next slide. How are we going to estimate omega? Well, uh, there are many different ways. And if there are professional actuaries who work in, in life insurance or annuities, I'm sure they can think of better ways uh, than the one that I'm going to talk about. But the one that I, I'm going to suggest, I think, is, is intuitive and it's fairly straightforward. Um, we, we have available data on uh, the longest lifespans of people um, that have been verified. There's a group called the Gerontology Research Group who has a list of people who have lived to 110 or more. Those people are called super, uh, super centenarians. And the database has about 1,700 or more individuals in it. I don't have all 1,700 uh, ages, but I do have the, the top 101, 101, long, the 101 longest lifespans because they're available on Wikipedia. And so I, I took them down and I, I did some work with them. Uh, these people were born in the, in the window of time from 1870 to 1907. Clearly, um, medical standards were different. Uh, we wouldn't say that a person born then would have the same life expectancy of a person born now. But for simplicity, let's assume that all of those people born between 1870 and 1907 had the same distribution of time to live. Their lifespan was the same kind of random variable. It had the same upper bound omega. Uh, and we'll say that our 101 longest lifespans are just the longest or, or the largest values in a sample of all the people that were born then. I don't know how many people were born during that period, but I, I have a very crude estimate that it's somewhere around 300 million births. So we'll say that we we're looking at the top 101 ages from a sample of about 300 million. Those two ladies at the bottom of the slide are the record holders at the moment. And um, let's turn to the next slide. To give you a flavor, these are the top 10 uh, recorded human lifespans. Um, one thing to note is that uh, two of these individuals are still alive. Another thing is I, I, I believe they're all female. Um, and the third thing is that the record holder, uh, Jeanne Calmont of France, um, she reached the age of 122 years, 164 days. And that right now is the maximum observed human lifespan. Um, but there's one further thing to note about that. And that is that if you look at the gap between her age at, at death and the age of Sarah Canas from the United States, who is second on the table, it's actually a gap of more than three years. And if you look down the list of ages, that gap, the, the gaps are much smaller. Uh, the gap between Calmont and Canas is really quite large compared to the other ones. And so there, there's a question there about, um, you know, what, what, what is it that explains this gap? Next slide, please. So is Jean Calment's lifespan of 122 plus years an extraordinary event? Is the claim of that an extraordinary claim? Certainly it's remarkable that someone would live that long, but we're since we're looking at data on the very longest 
human lifespans recorded, um, we would expect the numbers to be quite large in the neighborhood of 120 or so. And so even though the probability of a baby at birth living to that age is, is much, much less than one out of a million, um, it, this is really not extraordinary because conditioning on looking at the, the very uh, longest lived people, it, it perhaps is not so unlikely. But what is unlikely is that it's a statistical outlier. As I noted, um, there's a gap between the age of death of uh, Jeanne Camon and the age of death of Sarah Knoss. And if you look at the, slide, uh, the, the plot on the left, you can see the actual values of the lifespans. Uh, they're all in excess of 114 years, which is the, the lowest number on the y-axis. And then uh, in the upper right the, um, is the age of Jeanne Camon, which is circled in blue. Um, it looks like an outlier. If you wanted to do a formal test, an easy way to do that, go to the slide on the right. I took ratios of the successive uh, lifespans. So the point in the upper right on the right is the ratio of Jeanne Camon's age to Sarah Canas's age. And as you can see, that ratio is clearly, um, clearly far away from the the, the the average or median uh, of these ratios, which are all very close to one. And this one is um, significantly, very significantly farther away. Next slide, please. Um, because of this, um, this, this large gap, this outlier, and also because if we look on the slide, um, the, the second uh, point here in blue, um, a quote from Norris McWhorter, who with his brother Ross were the founders of the Guinness Book of World Records. Um, no single subject is more obscured by vanity, deceit, falsehood, and deliberate fraud than the extremes of human longevity. Now, I'm sure you can think of some other things that people might may want to boast about that um, also may be obscured by vanity, deceit, and falsehood. But certainly age and longevity is one of them. Um, and the next point is, um, is kind of interesting. Um, and that is that from U.S. Social Security data, there people did a study um, uh, some years ago and found that of deaths between 1980 and 2009, um, of people that were supposed to be super centenarians, that is 110 or older, when they took a look at those people who died in that, that period with an age, recorded age of 110 or more, and they looked more closely, they found that 80% of them involved an error, either an intentional misrepresentation or some sort of accident. Um, so there, there has been an accusation that the Kalmaw claim is fraudulent. Uh, this came up some years ago and it was, um, it was repeated and somewhat popularized by a couple Russian scientists in 2018, uh, Novoselov and Zach. And they essentially argued that um, and, and made a case that uh, the real Jeanne Calmont passed away in 1934, um, and then she was replaced by her daughter, Yvonne, um, who was born in 1898, and then it was Yvonne who passed away in 1997, and she was only 99 years, uh, 99 years old at that time. Next slide, please. Uh, there's a considerable amount of evidence on both sides of this issue, um, and, a, and a number of papers have been published. Um, I have some of the references here. 
I have a list of bullet points that go over some of the more um, you know, salient, salient um, sources of evidence. Uh, essentially, the argument that Zach makes is that there was a, a strong financial motive for Yvonne to take the place of Jeanne Calment. Um, and I'm not going to go into how plausible that is. I'm not going to go into most of these other items. I, one of the bullet points is on photographic evidence. I'm going to show you some photos later, and, and you can decide for yourself what you think um, in terms of this case. Uh, I do want to mention also the last two things, because I think that they're somewhat relevant. They're floating around in the background. Um, Jeanne Calment is a celebrity in France. Um, I, I'm not French, but I did a little due diligence. My, my dentist here in Beijing is French, and he's been in Beijing for 14 years. Um, but I asked him if he knew who Jeanne Calment was, and he said, oh, certainly we all know who Jeanne Calment is. So at least people, I guess, his age, uh, which is similar to my age, would um, know who Jeanne Calment is in France. Um, and the other thing I want to point out is that she does have some tissue samples, some blood samples available. A DNA test could, could determine whether the woman who passed away was the mother or the daughter um, without, without uh, um, exhuming any bodies. But um, uh, somewhat strangely, a DNA test has not been conducted. Next slide, please. So the uh, scientific consensus is uh, in the gerontological community. The actuarial community, as far as I know, hasn't uh, said too much about this um, particular issue. But the gerontologists, uh, the professional gerontologists, are pretty much lined up behind um, the validity of the Calmont claim. They, they believe that it's, it's correct. Um, in fact, some of them are very upset with Zach's accusations. There's a paper by Robin and Alar. Uh, they call explicitly call for retraction of Zach's article. Uh, I should note that Robin and Alar were members of a team that actually investigated and verified Jeanne Camon's claim when it first was made after uh, she passed away. Uh, there's another paper that's very interesting by Young, um, and he he had he worked for the Guinness uh, World Records Association. Um, and he says actually that there is no evidence against the claim, which I find a little difficult to believe because I, although some of Zach's arguments may be a bit far-fetched, there certainly is some plausibility associated with some of them. Um, he, and when you look at um, you know, how he, what the basis is for his argument, his conclusion, it's essentially that all of the experts in the world on this subject who have looked at it agree that the claim is valid. Guinness World Records says that it's valid. He did work for Guinness World Records. I have to point that out. And then he says case closed. That's the end of the story. Next slide, please. So my real my real question about this all is, um, are the research standards reasonable? Um, Young's conclusion in particular, I focus on his paper because I think it's representative and, and very lucid on this point. Um, his argument is that if you look at the evidence available, the paper trail, the photographic evidence, the signatures, the interviews and so forth, that it's, it's extremely convincing that, um, that the Calment claim is valid. Now, what I would point out is that all of this evidence is, in some degree, subjective. We, uh, unlike other areas in science, we can't run experiments. Um, or we can't replicate Jeanne Calment many times to see how long she lives. 
um, she's a one-off. And um, so what we need to know is, is really, is it the same person who was born on a certain date, who passed away on a certain date? And we don't have any, any way of confirming that short of perhaps a DNA test, which hasn't been performed. So I, I just want to emphasize that subjective belief plays a large role in this decision. Um, I also want to, uh, and I've, I've alluded to this, but I just want to point out that a large part of the argument in favor of the Kamal claim seems to be an appeal to authority. That is, the people who are experts in this field say that it's a valid claim. The people who say it's not a valid claim really aren't experts in the field. And, um, and I am somewhat, um, somewhat skeptical when I, when I hear an argument like that being made. By the way, I'm not an expert in this field. And I also want to point out that I'm not really a skeptic about this conclusion. I, I actually believe that the woman who died in 1997 is Jen Kalmal. I believe that based on photographic evidence, which I'll show you in a few moments. Uh, but I, I'm concerned about the, the scientific standards and how it is that we deal with, with subjective information in particular. Uh, next slide, please. So one question is, or a big question is, how do we deal with subjective information? Um, and uh, I want to suggest we should ask professional actuaries. Uh, and professional actuaries have been working with subjective information for a long time. Often in the field of um, risk insurance, we have very limited data. And as we do in, in, in this case as well, as you can see from the, um, some of the, 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 the sample uh, lifespans that I showed you, there are very few people who live over the age of 110. So um, what do actuaries do? They use Bayesian methods, which are formal statistical procedures for combining subjective belief with objective or scientific observations. Um, and one simple way that they do this is through something called credibility estimation, in which they construct a weighted average um, of two estimates, two point estimates, indicated on the slide as theta, with subscript ordinary and then say the theta subscript subjective. So the first one, the theta ordinary, that's that's an estimate based on objective data. The other one's based on um, maybe a variety of weaker sources, including subjective information. And they can they they use uh, methods for for choosing the weight z that is given to the the objective. Uh, or ordinary estimate, and then the complement of that is given to the subjective information. Next slide. Um, I went ahead and um, calculated a credibility estimator in this case. Specifically, I assumed I was trying to estimate the upper bound on the human lifespan, omega. And I did that two ways. One was just using the observation of Jean Calmont's life lifespan, and the other was just using the observation of Sarah Kanas. And um, Sarah Kanas's lifespan stays the same whether or not I think there was fraud, but Jen Calmont's changes, and therefore uh, the, the, um, the actual, the value of the estimate of, of omega would change. So what I do is I construct an estimate of omega using just Kanas's age, um, there is a, a there is a, a probability p that go, goes into that as well, um, and that's because I um, it's going to change the the relative amount of weight that it that is given to the omega in that calculation. 
Um, and uh, I do the same thing for the Calmont estimate, and then I compute the, the Z coefficient, the, the credibility coefficient as well. Um, the P again is a, a parameter. It's the subjective probability of fraud or probability that there was an identity switch. And what we can see when we turn to the next slide is that we can make it a, a, an estimate of this upper bound omega that is a function of that, that subjective probability P. So on the left, if we believe uh, that there's no probability of fraud or an identity switch, then we come up with an estimate of about 123.6 years for omega. And if we believe that it was entirely fraudulent, it was certainly fraudulent, 100% probability on the right-hand side, then that estimate of omega goes down to about 122.6. So that's the, the effect um, of either using um, the, the, the Calmont claim on its face value or not. And of course, we could choose a P anywhere in between zero and one, depending on our personal probability, our personal sense of what this chance of fraud actually is. Next slide. Um, would this be acceptable? Is this an acceptable way to conduct science? Uh, you may be aware, you may uh, have, um, have read about Bayesian methods becoming more common in various types of empirical science. But generally that uh, occurs um, in areas in which sample sizes are reasonably large. In this case where we have a very small sample size and the subjective parameter P would play a, an important role. Um, Bayesian methods or, or this kind of credibility esti estimate would be looked at somewhat um, skeptically. And that's because science is usually viewed as a collective undertaking, um, not a place for personal belief to be injected in and have a tremendous amount of influence. Now, having said that, I would point out that um, actuaries have been doing this for a long time and they're not working in isolation, although Michael may have a joke about actuaries um, and their personalities and so forth. But the, um, they do work with other people and they work on teams and so it is somewhat collaborative. Um, and I also wanna point out that Young and the others uh, in the gerontological establishment um, they are working together, certainly, um, but they are relying heavily on subjective belief. And, and that is because they don't have a scientific way of, of validating uh, the person who, who passed away in 1997, unless they do a DNA test. Okay, so um, what, are, what, what, what is it that supports these different approaches? Well, you could say that, actually, I'd like to go back to the previous slide if we could just quickly, sorry. Um, what is it that supports actuarial forecasting? Uh, one might argue it's market forces, actuaries that, um, that use bad, subjective, um, judgmental uh, methods um, will, will lose money, their companies will lose money. Um, what about in the case of Young and, and his colleagues? Well, they have their reputation. There's um, scholarly peer pressure, their reputation is on the line. Uh, which of these things is, is more dependable? And next slide, please. So I actually would argue that neither one is very dependable. I think both, I, both, I think scholarly peer pressure is quite weak. In fact, I've seen from my own experience as an academic and publishing over a number of years, I've seen situations where peer pressure pushed people in what I think is clearly the wrong direction. 
Um, so I'm not sure that it would validate um, or, or should be used to, to validate um, a particular uh, per point of view. Uh, in this case, I don't. Uh, market forces, I, I have to say, are also pretty weak. Why? Because an insurance company is not going to go out of business because it calculates omega with one year higher or one year lower. That's just going to have a very small effect on any kind of real insurance policy or annuity. Uh, so I don't think that that's a reasonable um, constraint here either. But perhaps we could take an idea from this actuarial idea, this actuarial method and the, the idea of market forces and strengthen the forces through prediction markets. Now, I don't really need to explain prediction markets to people living in the UK because they're known as betting markets. And you have them, you've had them for many years. We, we don't have them in China. Uh, we have them to a limited extent in the United States. Um, and um, what you can do in a, in a prediction market is you could have a statement like the one that's in blue here. Uh, given that French scientists conduct DNA tests on Madame Calmont's blunt samples, they will confirm there was no identity switch. Uh, we, we could have that statement and people could bet on the validity of that. Now, this is a little different um, than usual because it's a conditional statement. We don't know whether the DNA test ever will be conducted, but presumably people would still bet on, uh, could still bet on the, the conditional statement and their money could be returned if indeed uh, the test isn't carried out in the next 10 years or, or some period of time. Uh, there is some evidence that prediction markets can uh, be very useful in uh, making scientific decisions and, and predicting scientific out outcomes. So I, I think it actually does lend um, some credibility to, um, to this approach. Finally, if a market prediction market existed, next slide. How would you bet? On the right-hand side, we have photographs of you. Madame Calment, who passed away in 1997. These are all the same woman on the right. I believe she's aging progressively from the upper left to the lower right. And then on the left side, we have um, a group on the top, a group on the bottom. The top is the mother, Jeanne Calment, taken before 1934, photos taken before then. Bottom, Yvonne Calment, the daughter, photos taken before 1934. Um, which one of those do you think, uh, which, which progression on the left do you think leads to the progression on the right? Uh, perhaps you can tell us in a question and answer. Thank you very much. Oh, great. Michael, thank you so much. And didn't we have a poll question as well about that? Well, we could do this as a poll question. Um, I didn't set it up formally, but um, if it's possible, we could do that. Okay, folks. Yeah, here we go. Great. You've got Great. your poll question. So do you think it's uh, Jean Calment? Do you uh, believe the story, uh, Yvonne Calment? Or would you bet that it's just Madame Calment? I actually, I think that they would need to be clear. They would need to bet on Jen or Yvonne, and they should not bet on Madame. Yes, right. so, Madame will, interpret as, will interpret Madame as undecided. Yeah, undecided, yes. Sorry. So the poll is there. Um, we're getting close to the end virtually the entire audience has voted. So we'll just close that poll Great. and uh, show you the results. And uh, you've uh, you've got a, a group, half of us uh, believe it's uh, Jean and a quarter are undecided and a quarter believe it's Yvonne. So that's super. Oh, that's very, that's very interesting. Yeah, um, so if you could uh, put this, could you put that last slide up again? 
Actually, sure. I um, I just wanted to um, inject my, I, I've looked at these photos a lot and I don't necessarily recommend that you do that um, yourself, but if you're interested, there's a, there's quite a bit of information on, on the internet available. Um, I, I, I actually, I'm convinced by, by the photographic evidence, even though it, it apparently hasn't been examined by um, professional, you know, forensic experts. Uh, but I'm, I'm convinced that some of the, if you look, for example, at, at the photo um, in the upper left on, and the, the, the older woman on the upper left where she's looking down, uh, that looks very much like the one of Jeanne Camon in the lower right. And mm. then actually, if you move to the right in the, on the, the older woman, that looks, and then you move to the left in Jen Calmont, that those two kind of match. And then you go again at, to the right on Madame Calmont, to the left on Jen Calmont, they kind of match. I, I don't see the same resemblance with the daughter, okay. um, but there have been people who have looked at, you know, photographs of the earlobes of the shape of the nose and they're convinced that actually it is Yvonne. So it's a very interesting um, question. Well, Michael, we've got a lot of questions and not a lot of time, so yes. I'm just going to, I mean, okay. I just think this whole idea that uh, actuaries are kind of playing uh, Hercule Poirot <laughs> is, is kind of interesting. Um, I, I'm also, of course, a, a little interested as well, because, of course, you allude to uh, Madame Carmont's family's interests, uh, which, of course, is intriguing. Right. They, right. they are, in fact, in many ways actuarial. It was a you know, France is the home of the Tontine. Uh, in other words, the last person standing gets to uh, gets all the cash. Uh, and France is also the home of uh, contingency contracts on property. Uh, and I believe this was the case that she signed a contract with her lawyer uh, when she was something like 75. And then she outlived both her lawyer and the subsequent owner and basically lived at her house for free. I recall correctly. That's right, that, but that wasn't the that wasn't the motivation for the supposed fraud. This that actually happened much later. Uh, uh -huh. The 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 fraud, if it did take place, is something that happened in the 1930s, oh. and it I I believe it there was it was, it was some kind of annuity or uh, account, but I don't remember the details. Um, well, we can get, it that, doesn't, get that online, but um, just a couple of things. So, so um, we've got a, a few people who want to understand a few things. Um, so the first is uh, what uh, Bob Compton is curious. You know, what does this uh, imply for the idea of black swan events? So uh, we've got another question here uh, from Christopher Gleedle. You know, would the double slit experiment be an extraordinary event? Uh, and I might throw in: uh, is climate change an extraordinary event? Certainly, when I was a young person, that was a one in a million would easily be. The planet's going to, you know overheat in 100 years, we're all going to die. Um, so just, just a quick elaboration on that. Okay, uh, these are all things that I, I think about, so I, but I don't know if that you know have a good answer. Um, I think that um, actually it is it, not a bad idea with so-called black swan events. I, I tend to think of them as, in terms of probability distributions, as probability distributions that have heavy tails, unlike the human lifespan distribution, which is very light. Um, so if you were to want to make a, a forecast of, you know, just how big something could be out in the tail and you don't really know the the true distribution, uh, I think that um, that uh, bringing together people through, um, through prediction markets could be a very good way mm -hmm. of aggregating subjective information that goes into that, um, that, that estimate. 
with regard to the double slit experiments, certainly before uh, the various phenomena of quantum um, physics were known, the various counterintuitive aspects were known, um, that would, yes, have been an extraordinary claim to say that. Now it's become um, quite, you know, quite understood um, as, as routine, although it still remains counterintuitive. I find it extraordinary in that uh, I find it very hard to get my head around it. Mm. Um, I guess many physicists do as well. Uh, so I would say it's it's extraordinary in that sense, but it, um, it not in a, in a scientific sense um, because it, it certainly does fit predictive models. And then your, your your third one was about climate change. I think that's another good um, another good situation where we could aggregate um, beliefs from um, through prediction markets because there's a lot of subjective information and a really broad base of information. Okay. Um, Bob Compton, and I think Bob's referring to your slide on the subjective credibility estimate uh, on your Bayesian approach. If the 122 age were false, then the next oldest age was 119, but you put up 122.5. Right. Could you just explain that quickly? Oh, the, um, okay. So the, first of all, on that slide, the, the numbers that are on there are the estimates of omega and omega is always ah. going to be above an actual um, lifespan. What happens is if she can, if there's fraud, that person, that, that number, her, her age suddenly drops to 99, which is the age at which Yvonne would have passed right. away. But your estimate of omega. Is, uh, right. And another, another quick one. Um, wouldn't it be more important than perhaps a DNA test would be, because um, we've got a number of people lurking just below, isn't the test to wait a few years until they exceed 122 or not? Yes, that's that, That's certainly what, uh, there have been a number of papers written about that. Actually, there are some papers written on the subject of how long are we going to have to wait until someone beats Jen Kamon's um, record. The, the, uh, you know, I don't want to jinx any of those people who are on the list, but the probability that somebody who is one, you know, 118 or 119 making it to 122 is very, very remote. Right. Um, and so they, the, the probability is still very small that that will happen. Yeah. Uh, Madhu Acharya is curious. So we've got all these innovative technologies, machine learning to deal with subjective data and insurance underwriting and claims processing. You know, uh, can these innovative technologies actually replace the traditional methods that actuaries are historically using? I think that, um, that w when there are large sets of data, um, yes, I mean, roughly speaking, yes. When there, when the large sets of data, as long as they're interpreted properly and long, as long as there's not a misunderstanding of what the data actually are, yes. Um, when there are small, small samples, we're always going to be left with um, a subjective element. It's possible that AI and machine learning techniques can um, can uh, make you know develop develop ways of formalizing that um, through you know certain algorithms, and they might do better than than human beings. That that's certainly possible. But I, I think that they will be doing the same thing that human beings are doing now with subjective yeah. information. I was very interested. Sort of this is between you and me. I very interested in the fact that you ended on a kind of a fairly strong affirmation of prediction markets. Uh, Zien built a prediction market back in 99, which is still running today, so uh, getting on for 22 years, um, called Ecstasy, which I put in the chat room. And we bet on the, um, the news coverage of various countries is one of the markets. There are several other markets, but that's the biggest one. But I've always had this difficulty. Uh, the, 
sort of the, I guess, one of the granddaddies is the Iowa exchange, which is looking as a, at presidential elections. But these are people who are professionals and they've got their professional reputation and they can bet a little bit on it uh, as long as it's not there because it's based in the States. Abroad, as you point out, you know, betting markets are there. And I find that great, but uh, it's the fact that people put money on it and people won't put large amounts of money, relatively speaking, on things that they don't have an opinion on and their opinion is arguably formed by, by that. We then, of course, get into differentials between inordinately wealthy people who might put on bets, which seem very large to you and me, but are actually inconsequential to them. So it's getting the right prediction market is quite a problem. So, you know, asking everybody on the planet about climate change is probably asking everybody on the planet what they think about media coverage. Uh, it doesn't really garner new information. You said that in the case of actuarial forecasting, one of the approaches was uh, that reasonableness presumably is insured by market forces. Um, and yet, when we had the financial crisis, we found that the market forces around actuaries, particularly on things like pensions, uh, as well as some of the actuaries who were involved in CDOs and things, uh, weren't really weren't really valid. Any any comments on that before we close? I, I don't know that I would blame actuaries specifically. I think that there was much blame to go around in the financial crisis, um, and um, I think many insurance actuaries were actually um, doing their jobs very well. So I'm not I'm not sure I want to lay that at that at their door. Yeah. With regard to climate change. Um, I think you make a really, really good point, uh, and that could even be politicized, for example. Some people could bet money to, to achieve a certain outcome. I would never suggest doing a prediction market on something really like a, a real you know, big question like, is climate change caused by human beings? Okay. I would do it on some very narrow thing like, you know, what is the chance that we will see more hurricanes in the Atlantic Basin next year than this year or something like that? Gotcha. Uh, I think that I think that that I think there is evidence. I'm not an expert in the area of prediction markets, but I, I've read about them uh, somewhat. I think there is evidence that what happens is that people um, who go into these markets and they find they don't know what's going on, they don't bet, or they start educating themselves, or they ask other people who do know. So I, I think it's just still a good way of, of gathering information, or crowdsourcing information, mm -hmm. so to speak. I don't think it's a solution to every problem. No, I, I, I know there are true believers out there like that. I just, I'm looking at it as a pragmatic approach to some no, And I would agree with you. We're fans of it or we wouldn't be running one. So uh, yeah, we, we like it. Maya, I just really adore the idea of delving into this uh, arcane case of uh, Jean Carmont and, and, and really pulling it apart and showing how actuaries think. I think you've done a wonderful job today of uh, explaining to the audience how, how you would approach it and how actually it can add value to the analysis. So for that, I absolutely must thank you. Um, but I must thank uh, three quickly, if I may. Firstly, our sponsors, thank you for, as ever, being tolerant and let us uh, range across things. And I hope you've got an idea of how actuarial science fits into our technology, economics, and finance world. Uh, secondly, to the audience, um, Always uh, great of you there. I just got a quick uh, note from somebody that ecstasy is down, but we will uh, just quickly restart that. So um, that was put in the room there. Uh, we do have a number of things coming ahead uh, later this week and next. As ever, uh, let me save you time. Uh, go check it out on the website, register, and do send on to your uh, friends, family, and colleagues. But most importantly, Michael, we've known each other for a while. I've always adored the way that you write. 
at least quoting you to the government uh, earlier this month. I'd like to thank you so much for sharing your insights into actual science. And it's certainly not an extraordinary claim uh, to claim that you are actually one of the leaders in the field. We really appreciate your time. Well, th thank you so much. And I'd be very happy if anyone in the audience would like to write to me. Uh, my email address is on the slides. I look forward to hearing from you. Great. Thank you. Sai Jian. <laughs> Sai Jian. <laughs>